Presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz back in the studio with us after his journey out into the field last week. How did that investigation go, Matt? That investigation actually went quite well. Got a bunch of EVPs. Um, it, it was definitely an interesting, interesting investigation. Now, it was a private residence, but uh, can you reveal what town it was in? Because I know it was local. A Cushnet, Massachusetts, one town over from New Bedford. And it's actually part of the, um, what would be the Bridgewater Triangle, actually. And and the, the homeowners aren't, um, they're not out there publicly. They don't really want to reveal this publicly, but are they willing to? Once all the evidence has been gone over and you've shown it to the homeowners, are they willing to let you at least reveal the evidence? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So at some point, the the interesting EVPs that you capture will be posted up on SpookySouthCoast.com. It wasn't just my EVPs. I have some that I brought into the studio with me tonight. But um, Chris Balzano has uh, a good set of them, as well as Tom D'Agostino, who was with me with this last investigation. And how was it? I know you've investigated with Chris in the past. Is this your first time with Tom out in the field? Or? Yes, actually, and I'm going out with him again tomorrow to a place out in Connecticut. And we're going to actually be talking about Tom a little bit later on when we talk about Paranormal X, The Gathering. But uh, Tom uh, seems like he's he's like you. He's very laid back in his approach. He seems like a very low-key guy. Is, is that his investigative style as well? Exactly. Him and I have very, very similar styles. We've also been doing it roughly the same amount of time, so we've... You know, we've gotten past the, you know, shock and awe, mm-hmm. running, or, you know, now it becomes like, okay, we just get in, settle into what we do. Him and I happen to work very well together. Uh, we, Like I said, we have similar techniques and things like that, so, yeah. And we'll throw out a plug for his new book, Haunted Massachusetts, as well as uh, Haunted New Hampshire. They go hand-in-hand with his uh, previous book, Haunted Rhode Island. So you might want to make sure you check those out. And, of course, Chris Balzano is the administrator of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website. You can check it out at masscrossroads.com. You know, we love we love to plug our friends here. That's what we do. And we'll be doing that a little bit later on when we talk to our guest, Ray Dwellby of Scars Magazine, who will be talking to us about Paranormal X The Gathering. It's a big paranormal conference. It's not really a conference, per se. It's more just a... A bunch of cool people in the paranormal field getting together and, and hanging out with, you know, those interested in the subject for a night. Uh, it's going to have uh, guests like Donna LaCroix, Brian Hanwa, Andy Andrews, Lisa Dualaby. Wow, I wonder how much convincing it took him to, to get her to go. <laughs> uh, Paula Donovan, Keith Johnson, Sandra Johnson, Carl Johnson, and Tom D'Agostino, as well as EVP specialist Karen Mossy. They'll all be there next Saturday night at the uh, the Sheraton uh, airport hotel in warwick we'll talk more about it a little bit later on in the second hour uh, but we all are also going to be giving away a pair of tickets to that event which these are a 99.99 value that's right a hundred dollar per ticket value so it's a, it's a 200 package that scars magazine has been nice enough to donate to us to give away tonight also later on we've been teasing it all week long we will give away a pair of tickets to see the one the only the incomparable weird al yankovic 
at the Zitarian Theater in New Bedford on Wednesday night, September 19th. So, I don't know, Matt Costa, we've been talking about this all week, and we, we tried to come up with a contest to give away the tickets, and I, I don't think it really worked out. No, I think the initial idea for the concept was good. It was a good idea. Moniz, yeah. uh, we can credit Moniz with that. Moniz, good work. And, and my wife suggested it, too. I said, you'll never believe what Moniz came up with with an idea, and she said it verbatim, almost what you said. I was like, <laughs> Well, you're, as I said a million times, your wife's a very smart woman. Yeah, but then why was she thinking what you were thinking then? Oh, that's gonna hurt! Zing. Zinga, zing, zing. No, but seriously, why don't you tell everybody, Moniz, what your idea was? Basically a paranormal parody. Which would have been perfect had anybody really actually submitted one. But we didn't get any. Uh, we did get one submitted, and it was pretty good, but we can't enter it into the contest because it was my brother. And relatives of Spooky South Coast are not eligible, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. But I was going to write one called Wheezy Lover. <laughs> to the tune of so Easy serious. Lover, yeah, that would have been awesome. Were you actually going to get like, uh, were you going to get uh, what's his name, Philip, whatever his name is? Uh, I can't Phil think of Bailey. Right Phil Bailey, yeah. Uh, we're going to get Phil Bailey to sing along with you. Well, he, yeah. Got nothing else going on. I don't think. He was working down at the gas station down from street. <laughs> was he? No, yeah. No. He's like, I'm a little busy. Uh, I'll be busy doing crack that night. <laughs> I hope Philip Bailey isn't a crackhead, uh, and I hope he isn't listening. No, we love Philip Bailey. We do. Without Philip Bailey, Phil. Phil Collins would not be who he is. Today. No, he would have fallen flat on his face, exactly. which wouldn't have taken a long time because he's only like five foot nothing. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, what do we talk about here? The paranormal? Something like that. Yeah, okay. So we were going to have this contest to, to, to give away um, the Weird Al tickets. If anybody was in the process of creating a paranormal parody and you just ran out of time, please, please still send it to us. Email it to me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com or Send it to me over our MySpace, myspace.com slash SpookySouthCoast, and we will play it on the show. And uh, if anybody sends one in and it's any good, we'll send them a T-shirt or a bumper sticker or something. So we'll come up with some sort of prize. But we will give away the Weird Al tickets later on tonight. Uh, we'll come up with some creative way to do that. We just haven't thought of it yet. Uh, flying by our seat of a pants. That's what we do here. But all that is secondary to our main topic tonight, which is haunted baseball. We will be joined in just a few minutes by authors Dan Gordon, who is a local guy, as well as Mickey Bradley. Now, these guys spent a couple of years traveling to different major league ballparks, talking with major league players, uh, both retired and active, managers, and they sat down with them and they talked to them about their experiences in the paranormal surrounding baseball. I mean, anything from you know ghostly encounters they've had at home to things that have happened in the ballpark to curses to all kinds of different stories. And we will talk to both of those guys in just a couple of minutes, and, and this is really special, I think, because they've been doing a big media tour for the book Haunted Baseball. Uh, it, it just came out recently, and you can go to their website, hauntedbaseball.com, if you want to check it out. But there's only two radio shows that they've appeared in together at the same time in this media publicity tour. We're one of them, and the other one was, what's the granddaddy of all paranormal radio shows? Coast to Coast. So... I, I don't know. I think that's pretty cool that we're going to be, besides Coast to Coast, we're the only other show that's going to get them both at the same time. And we're getting them both at the same time on a very interesting day because Mickey Bradley is a Yankees fan, and he's named after Mickey Mantle, the legendary center fielder for the Yankees, who figures into some of these stories. And Dan Gordon is a lifelong Red Sox fan. So it's going to be really interesting to have them both on. You know, the Yankees got the edge on Friday night, and the Red Sox, uh, I guess, had the edge today. So uh, I'm sure that they're uh, I'm sure that they're ready to go at it over that as well. So, 
It's also been, what, a year since they've been on with us, right? Almost. Maybe even more than that, yeah, because we had Dan on to talk about uh, Cape Cod Ghost Stories uh, a while ago with his co-author, Gary Joseph. It is a very good book. Uh, They came on and talked with us, and back then we were able to tease Haunted Baseball a little bit because it hadn't been released yet. But now we can get into all the stories, and and let me tell you, there's there's some great ones. I mean, we're going to be talking about some of the biggest names in the history of the sport. Uh, We're going to be talking about guys like Roberto Clemente, Lou Gehrig, uh, some of these famous curses, uh, of course, you know that that supposed curse on the Red Sox, which has now gone away. What, what was that called, Matt Costa? What's that? The curse that was on the Red Sox. The the curse, the curse of, of the, the uh, Bambino. <laughs> I was going to say, don't say curse of the Bambino because every time you mention it, we just we have to pay royalties to Dan Shaughnessy. I'd rather but, pay royalties to, from that to that kid from the Sandlot. He needs it too. All right, so why don't we take a break, and when we come back, we will talk to Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, authors of Haunted Baseball. We'll talk to them about baseball ghost stories and sports ghost stories and all kinds of different stuff. And if you want to join in the conversation, feel free to give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And if you want to razz Mickey for being a Yankees fan, that's fine too. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with Matt Casa and Matt Moniz. And on the line we have co-authors of the book Haunted Baseball, Ghosts, Curses, Legends, and Other Eerie Events. Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley are joining us. Now, guys, considering what's been going on this weekend with the the way the Red Sox-Yankee series has, has been going on, are you going to be able to stay civilized during the course of this interview here? <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't talked too much about that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> this is Mickey speaking. So uh, I was all for talking about it yesterday because uh, I'm the Yankee fan, and um, tonight I, I think we have other things to talk about. <laughs> Dan, you can gloat real quick if you want. Feel free. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, I mean, we had 2004, and uh, I, I actually, you know, Mickey and I, one of the reasons why we, we get along so well is we try not to gloat in front of each other, and that's how, <laughs> how we can survive being uh, a Yankee-Red Sox dual uh, um, team Book. You you kind of have to though. I mean, because the 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 way things go, it could shift on a dime. So you never know what's going to happen. So you kind of just got to play it down the middle when you're around each other, and then you know you can tell stories about each other to your other friends behind their back. You won't believe my friend Mickey. He's a Yankees fan. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, so, that's that's generally how it goes. I always say we're we're always very polite about each other's teams, and we compliment each other's teams, and we're self-deprecating about our own teams. Um, we don't mean a word of it, but it helps the partnership along. <laughs> Well, it's good, though, that you're each a fan of these different uh, historic franchises because both of them are so deeply rooted in what we're going to be talking about tonight, Haunted Baseball. And, I mean, reading through your book, some of these stories that that have come out of both Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park, I mean, are these two of the most haunted places in sports? They definitely are. We, we, We heard about lots of places and lots of teams. But when you start talking about stadium stories, and we have variety in the book, um, it's not surprising that you hear about the older stadiums the most. So Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Wrigley has a bunch of stories in there too, and that's why I think I think that you know the best stories are the ones that really tie into baseball history and tradition. I really view the book as a, a sort of a salute to baseball's history and tradition because 
you know, a lot of these stories keep those old players alive and uh, keep keep the spirits of a place, you know, literally and figuratively, very active in the baseball world. I mean, that's what I was thinking as I was reading it. I was like, wow, if you if you take out the paranormal aspect of what's going on here, it's just a great baseball book. Oh, it is. I, I you know, that is certainly, um, you know, it's kind of like a prism for looking at baseball. These ghosts. I mean. Baseball already is such a nostalgic sport. There's so much, you know, tradition and, and you know, it's so steeped in history and, you know, more than any other sport. You know, people talk about the past. And so, you know, these ghost stories just fit in so perfectly. Well, and also you talk to over 800 players and managers uh, in compiling the book, and I can't think of any other authors that have written any other book on the subject that have had access to that many different players. I mean, even if you write a book about steroids, if you write a book about you know how to hit a home run, you won't get that wealth of uh, knowledge and, and discussion as you will talking about you know this subject. Yeah, we really wanted to sort of turn over as many stones as we could in talking to guys and collecting their stories. Now, obviously, we didn't get 800 stories in talking to 800 people, but... Mm-hmm. But we certainly heard uh, a wide variety of stories, and we were surprised. We were surprised both at some of the individual stories we heard, how unique some of them could be, and then we were also surprised at how, um, you know, you could get some of the same things you're hearing over and over from certain players, certain stadiums that get talked about by many different players on many different teams, certain visiting team hotels that are said to be haunted that we would hear about in locker room after locker room. So it was interesting to see both sides of that. And we'll definitely get into some of those stories. But uh, Matt Moniz had mentioned, uh, Dan, while you were talking about some of the superstitions of baseball players. And some of them are visibly superstitious. You know, guys like Nomar Garcia-Pari, you see the, you know, the histrionics at the plate that they go through. Uh, but a lot of the guys keep these superstitions to themselves. Uh, were they the same way in relating their stories? Did, they, did it take a while to get some stuff out of these guys? I think that actually they, many times players are very forthcoming. It, you know, it took me by surprise, actually, and I'm sure for Mickey, too, that, you know, just how willing players were sometimes to just, you know, share something that was, you know, what, you know, what some people might consider off the wall. You know, I mean, you know, certainly, you know, in the paranormal world, it's widely talked about, but like in, in baseball circles, you know, they, they were talking about stuff that, you know, I mean, very, very strange stories, like, you know, players, that, you know, admitting that they sleep with the lights on in, in hotels or players talking about, um you know, just the nervous feeling they get going into a certain ballpark, or, you know. Um, it, it really was, um, you know, it, it, yeah, they were very open, I, I think, and mostly. Occasionally there were players that were guarded, and usually it was for one or two reasons. One, you know, again, you know, as, as you'd mentioned, you know, there were a, a handful of players that perhaps, you know, were a little bit hesitant to talk about their stories. But also there were some players that just, uh, you know, scared of the topic, frightened. David Ortiz, when... I asked him about ghosts. He kind of waved his hand in front of his face, said, "No, no, no, I don't like, talk about that." <laughs> you know, so certain players, you know. Well, it it seemed really interesting to me. I mean, I, I've read most of the book, and as I'm going through it, there was one name that was auspiciously omitted from any of these quotes, and I didn't read anything from Kurt Schilling. Did you? Is this the one subject Kurt Schilling wouldn't talk about? <laughs> Kurt's a tough guy to get it for an interview, actually. And to be honest with you, no, we pretty much got everyone for the Red Sox, and. and um, you know, pretty much everyone throughout, but Kurt was one guy, and it's mainly because of his um, pregame routine. And mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, he's, you know, I, I approached him on a couple of occasions, and both times he said, "I can't talk right now." And, you know, maybe sometimes, you know, he may only go to his favorite media guy too. You know, he's kind of, you know, so yeah. I, I think he's more protective of his 
privacy than, than other players. I've heard him talk about so many other topics that have nothing yeah. to do with baseball that I thought, you know, I thought for sure he'd be the first yeah. guy to read a quote. Now, one guy that I, I saw a lot of stuff from was uh, was Derek Jeter, and he seemed to be a really big believer in something paranormal. Yeah, he he definitely supports the theory, and this is one of those stories that we heard from a number of players, not just Yankees, but certainly many Yankees, um, which is the notion of the ghost of Yankee Stadium, this idea that the ghosts of great players from the past, like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, still reside in the Bronx and help the team out in the late innings of big games by getting a ball to sneak over the fence or drop in for a hit or roll through an outfielder's leg, something like that. Um, so Jeter believes that, A-Rod believes that, Jason Giambi believes that, a lot of current players, and as I said, players from other teams and even other leagues, Chipper Jones is in the book uh, endorsing that idea too. So, yeah, Jeter is uh, definitely, and, and sometimes he's even cited as a, an example of that. First of all, he had a very famous quote in the 2003 um, championship series against the Red Sox, which Ooh. is one that I'm sure um, <laughs> Still hurts, Dan. people remember. But in Game 7, the historic Game 7, um, when, the, when the game was tied in the eighth inning and Aaron Boone was getting antsy on the bench, he said something to Derek Jeter about how can you be so calm. And, uh, you know, with, with the game on the line, the season on the line, and Jeter is quoted as, as saying, uh, the ghost will come eventually. And uh, sure enough, it was Aaron Boone himself who hit the walk-off home run that won that game in extra innings. Um, and then Jeter, of course, had a very famous home run in the 1996 World Series, the, the so-called Jeffrey Mayer home run, where uh, a 12-year-old fan sort of reached over and might have helped that ball become a home run in the first place. So. So he, he subscribes to it, and especially in the postseason, he believes that the ghosts are there helping out. And and one guy who definitely must believe in the ghost of Yankee Stadium is Johnny Damon because he needs Mickey Mantle's help getting that ball from center field back into the infield. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of these things, so just get ready for it, Mickey. Oh, yeah. I'm, no, I'm no not problem. as polite as Dan is. No problem. And uh, and Johnny Damon is a good example, really, because he believes um, he's a strong believer in general, I would say, in ghosts and, and uh, uh, notions related to them. He, he believed, for instance, that that uh, um, Aaron Boone home run that won the game was the result of the curse of the Bambino. And he also believes in the ghost of Yankee Stadium. And he gave us, maybe most interestingly, he gave us a, a personal ghost story um, that he had happen at his home in Orlando, where he woke up one afternoon from a nap and felt uh, a pressure on him. He couldn't get up. He was sort of being held down. And he thought to himself, I'm being held down by a ghost. And he was panicky, but he was paralyzed. He, he couldn't move. He said this lasted for about 15 to 20 minutes. And finally he just said, okay, you win. I give, I give, basically, to the ghost. And once he said that, the pressure was lifted, and he was able to get up and go on his way. Well, and it is interesting, too, when a guy like Johnny Damon is one of these people that's He's like a Kurt Schilling, you know. He's out there and, and he's willing to to talk about just about any subject. You can usually catch him, uh, at least in my experiences. You can usually catch him, you know, in, in a chatty mood. Uh, but to get him to open up about something like that, I mean, I can just imagine, you know, that's the kind of thing that even a Johnny Damon would want to keep to himself for the most part. But where you was willing to to sit and and talk with him about it, he opened up a little bit more. Yeah, he was extremely forthcoming about it. I thought, and you're right, he's a very affable and friendly person to begin with, very, very comfortable with the media. Um, but you never know. When you get into topics like this, mm -hmm. guys aren't always willing to share, like we, like we said. Yeah, some people might just shut down and for their own beliefs or their own, you know, if they haven't come to terms with what they've experienced and they don't want to share it with other people yet. Right, and you know what? They're, they're really at the mercy of, of uh, writers, and they're talking to a writer they've never met before, and 
they could twist the story to make them sound silly or do something, you know, off the wall with it. So it really but does involve a lot of trust. On the flip side, though, when you guys are talking to them and you're, you're calling these stories from Major League Baseball, you know, you're there with the purposes of chronicling these experiences where if they tried to share a similar experience, you know, with a regular beat writer, uh, then they just get laughed. I mean, look at what happened, and we'll get into it in a little while, but with Scott Williamson and the Vinoy story, I mean, it became kind of a joke in some of the newspapers, at least here in Boston. Sure, it did, and um, yeah, but it's something that you know is a very you know serious experience for him. In many ways, he thought it was kind of profound. You know, he was, he was you know he, we actually got a chance to catch up with him in Iowa and, and talk about it in more detail, and and you know it was quite a quite a story, you know, quite an experience for him. I mean, he called his wife. You know, he he was like he thought he might be having you know his heart was racing. He thought the pre- he first he experienced the pressure on his chest, and he. First thought it was, uh, you know, he might have been having a heart attack or something like that, you know. But of course, then he, he um, as the story, you know, this was reported in the papers. But he also described it himself. He, you know, he woke up and he thought he saw, you know, someone standing in the room, a guy in a trench coat and, you know, an old style cat, dressed kind of like in the 19, you know, from the 1940s. And the, the funny thing is, is that actually um, the very next team coming into the Vinoy was uh, Pittsburgh Pirates and. They had they hadn't gotten wind. This was when uh, Williamson was with the Reds, and um, you know the Pirates came in next, and this was an interleague game. They were playing against the Devil Rays. Vinoy is in, for those who don't know, is, um, is in Tampa Bay. I'm the visiting team hotel for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And anyway, when the, they they came through, and you know they always arrive at like three or four in the morning. The the uh, strength and pitching coach, uh, you know, went to his room and collapsed, and you know just went to sleep and. He awoke and he thought he saw a similar gentleman standing in his room, you know, in the 1940s. And when he described it the next day to teammates, they they had already heard, gotten wind of the Williamson or, you know, incident. So it was kind of something similar in parallel. And that that whole series actually a bunch of guys, and it's in our book, you know, some really great stories about with different guys and, and the Pirates and, and other teams as well have experienced in that hotel. It's quite a quite a creepy place. Well, I mean, in addition to baseball players having experiences, they've also they've had some paranormal investigations done there as well. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, they've had, you know, quite a, quite a few. It's, it's actually the reputation of the hotel is going back quite a way. We interviewed one one uh, former player with the Blue Jays, John Frascatorio, told us that, you know, he, growing up, he grew up in you know in the area, and he had heard you know kept kept reading stories in the newspaper about that that hotel, about like painters painting there. And, you know, going on break and finding their paint splattered on the walls and stuff like that. You know, but quite a few incidents. You know, it's got quite a reputation and definitely in Major League Baseball. And, you know, we were lucky enough to, to get a lot of guys, quote a lot of guys on that. And now, when Scott Williamson did a little digging, though, uh, or one of his teammates said, didn't they find out that uh, there was actually a, some weird synchronicity with the, the previous owner of the hotel? Yeah, the owner of the hotel, the, the owner of the land upon which the hotel was built, his last name was also Williamson. And uh, I think Scott came to believe that the, the figure that he saw in his room, this man dressed in the old 1930s and 1940s style garb, was Williamson himself. Sorry. Now, Williamson, uh, Scott Williamson, that is, mm-hmm. also said that um, the teammate who did the research discovered that uh, the Benjamin Williamson, who, who owned the land, had died on the property. We weren't able to substantiate that uh, for sure, but that becomes part of the legacy, too, in the story, that the... The person had died on the property, and therefore his spirit was still inhabiting that space. Well, if I remember right from reading the book, wasn't it John Burkett that found right, did right. the research? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. I would trust him because John Burkett was probably around back then. <laughs> and the guy the guy was like 150 years old when he was pitching for the Red Sox. So. 
See, I can do it to the Red Sox too, Mickey. It's okay, not going to be one side. Okay, I'm putting one mark in each column right now. <laughs> Well, uh, getting back to the idea of the Yankees now, uh, we're coming up on there's going to be some major uh, changes in the Bronx in the next couple of years because they're building the new Yankee Stadium, and uh, essentially they're going to demolish the old stadium. Uh, maybe there's some plans to turn it into like a, a memorial ball field or something, but they are going to make some major changes. And as we know, whenever you do construction or, or any kind of renovations, it tends to bring these ghosts out. What do you think is going to happen when they start tearing down the house that Ruth built? Well, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. I can tell you I asked, uh, I asked Derek Jeter that question, in fact. Will the, the ghosts of Yankee Stadium that, are, that uh, help out the team make the trip across the street? You know, the new stadium is literally right across the street in the Bronx. And uh, his, his philosophy was that, um, first of all, he said we'll have to wait and see. But he also said that he's, he's optimistic that they will, that the, you don't lose the history and tradition when you change venues. So he thinks that that spirit will still will still be there. But it's interesting too because when Yankee Stadium was first constructed and first opened in 1923, prior to that, the team had never won a World Series. They won a World Series the first year that the stadium existed, and obviously they've won a number of World Series since then. Um, we discovered in our research that when the stadium was being built, one construction worker tossed something into the main water pit just before it was graded over. We don't know exactly what, but there are notes on the. Um, construction company's paperwork that indicates something was tossed in for good luck. So um, Maybe it was a playbill from No 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 Net. That could be. Well, you know, it would be <laughs> when they tear down the stadium, maybe they can uh, look in there and try to see what it was. But, but they're, you know, it's, we talk about the ghost of Yankee Stadium, but it seems that even before um, some of those players were playing there, the stadium seemed to bring good luck to the team. And um, what will happen with the new stadium, who, who knows? You know, and I've uh, I've only been to two major league ballparks in my entire life, and it's Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium. And you can feel the, the tradition in both, but for some reason, as great as Fenway is, with, with Yankee Stadium, I mean, you really get a sense that this energy is, is there. Maybe it's the fact that it's so high and, you know, the way that it's positioned and maybe it feels like it's trapping in all that energy, but you definitely do feel those those ghosts. I mean, I sat in center field bleachers, so I was, you know, right near Monument Park, and you can just feel that type of atmosphere. And, and for the players to say that it's palpable, uh, especially the visiting team players, I mean, do they feel that they're going down there facing more than nine guys on the field? Yeah, we heard it repeatedly. You feel like you're playing against the, all the uh, great past players of the team as well. You know, I think Monument Park has a lot to do with that because you're very aware when you're in the park of the history and tradition. The, the, there's a long section of retired numbers, and I think I think there's I can't remember off, off the top of my head how many retired numbers there are. I want to say there's 16, but that sounds like an awful lot. Um, a lot of retired numbers there that, that are present on the field. And then Monument Park itself, for those who aren't familiar with it, has brass plaques on the wall. Uh, commemorating great players and a few great events from the past, and then also five large granite monuments to um, uh, great players. And Coach Miller Huggins has one, and Joe DiMaggio, and Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Mickey Mantle. So, um, you know, th there's a lot. It's, it's hard not to be aware of the past when you're there. And players told us that when you walk through the corridors, there's a lot of pictures on the wall recalling great moments from the past and great players from the past. So the, the past is very much present uh, for anyone who's in that building. Now, it, it, I think I read in the book there's n there are no plans to bring Monument Park with them when they move the 
when they move the stadium? No, no, they are. The okay. Monument Park will be there. In fact, it will be more accessible during the game. Right now, Monument Park closes 45 minutes prior to the game because you have to practically walk into the outfield to get there. Yeah. So it will be more accessible to fans during the game. What's not going to make the, the move over is uh, Thurman Munson's empty locker. That, that's it, yeah. That's currently the plan, right. So when he died in 1979 in a plane crash, they have ever since then left his locker with number 15 still on top of it uh, empty. And uh, that, there won't be moving that empty locker over to the new place. It's interesting. I mean, I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit later on about some of the curses in baseball, but, uh, you know, the Yankees lost Thurman Munson to a plane crash, and they also lost Corey Lytle to a plane crash. Uh, is there any talk from any of the players? Did anybody kind of correlate those at all? Because I'm sure you were talking to, to players right around the time that the, the Lytle incident happened. Actually, just before that. Okay. So, yeah, most of our research was completed by the end of last season, and then we spent a lot of the fall writing up the book. So, so yeah, so that event hadn't happened yet. But in, in your mind, I mean, you wouldn't put the two together? I don't know. I mean, you, you wonder about things like that because it does seem like there's such an obvious parallel. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we investigated some other players, too, who had died during the season. It's, obviously, it's always tragic, and it's it's – Sometimes it's a little bit of a sore spot to be asking players, especially players who played with guys, sure. to, um, you know, w when the wound is that fresh, to, to start thinking in terms of ghosts and spirits and those kinds of energies when they're still really uh, grieving, grieving but, a player. But players do, do like to talk about that stuff after a while. And, you know, we, we did talk to, to get a, you know, accumulate a few stories of, um, from players that actually talked about, you know, like feeling the spirit of somebody. You know, actually, one of the star one of my favorite stories was actually from Cleveland Indians players who talked about the spirit of a former trainer, Jimmy Warfield, who who passed away. Um, he passed away. He had a brain hemorrhage in the in the clubhouse um, one morning, and um, he died like the following day. And um, actually, while he was when he went to the hospital, he, he kind of felt he was in a coma, and a bird showed up on the field in Cleveland, and um, many of the players. Um, you know, thought it was kind of strange. Just one soul. It was a, a seagull, and it was by itself, and it was just kind of very strange-looking, kind of um, smaller than the average seagull, and um, it just kind of hovered around the players and, around, and seemed to be following them around. Especially Jim Tomei and Jimmy Jimmy Wafield, the trainer, was very close to Jim Tomei, and and it turns out that the, you know over that the bird after the Wafield died, the bird was even more you know around the players, and many many players like believe that that was. Um, Jimmy Wafield, and, it, and it's kind of just be, by the bird's behavior, and, you know, they thought, you know, I mean, guys that, even guys like, certain guys who said that they weren't, didn't believe in ghosts, like we interviewed uh, Omar Vizcal, who said he was, didn't believe in ghosts, and kind of dismissed the topic, but, like, he thought for sure that that bird was Jimmy Wafield, so it's it's really kind of interesting that, you know, how players react to the loss of someone close to them, and, you know, kind of, um, you know, perhaps, you know, see, see more, and perhaps perhaps it is more. Well, there's another similar story too in the book uh, with uh, Bill Spaceman Lee, and that right. you know that just that story just sounds perfect to fit in with Spaceman. <laughs> yeah, that was that was um, terrific. I mean, it kind of fit in with. Uh, he he thought that um, basically he he got actually not many people knew this, but he he actually had a pretty good relationship with Tom Yawkey. I mean, though he you know he kind of rubbed, you know he kind of didn't get along with a lot of Red Sox management, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And um putting it nicely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um when when uh 
uh, Yaki Pat, one of the things they talked about a lot was nature, and, you know, Yaki actually owned a, a, quite a bit of land down in South Carolina. A lot of it's now actually a trust, you know, trust land. You know, it's kind of a huge amount of coastline along South Carolina, and used to be lumber territory for, you know, his, lumbering company, his lumber companies, and he believed that. Um, he said, he mentioned that many birds, certain type of birds, like, died off because of uh, pesticides that uh, Yaki used. Um to kind of control um, for the lumbering, and we like said to him at one point, you know, you know, you you killed off all these birds, so you're gonna come back as a bird. And Yucky also shot used, him and uh, Ted Williams used to shoot at pigeons in uh, in Fenway Park. Um, it's kind of been, you know, it was a well-known thing that they would sit in the middle of Fenway Park, and you know, the the staff would rattle the, you know, the beams, or and, you know, kind of clank things, and the pigeons would fly up and. And Williams and and Yawkey would just take aim and shoot shoot at him, and um, you know so for that reason too you know Lee was convinced. So when Lee and Lee says the day that Yawkey passed away, he encountered Yawkey in the in the in the parking lot in the form of a pigeon, and like the pigeon wouldn't let Lee into the stadium. Kept walking one you know Lee stepped one way and the mm-hmm. bird stepped one way, and finally said you know he said Tom I got to get to the stadium, and the, the bird finally flew off. And it turns out there were many many more. Um, he describes many more incidents and encounters with with, uh, with birds. He thinks that the Hindu idea that you do come back, you know, in the form, you know, of, you know, how you lived your life is how you're going to come back, and you know, and that, you know, he keeps getting, you know, that Yaki's going to keep being reincarnated as, or, as a bird for a long time to come. So. Well, I think uh, Bill Lee's the kind of guy too that he'll be hanging around Fenway. <laughs> Once uh, his playing days in, in, in life are over. We are talking with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, authors of Haunted Baseball, Ghost Curses, Legends, and Eerie Events. And you can check out their website, hauntedbaseball.com, where you can get the book. And you can also get it, believe me, folks, at just about any bookstore around because everybody is is carrying uh, this book. Now, Dan, you had a book signing earlier today? Right. I had one at the Swansea Mall um, at Borders Express. And, and both of you guys have a, a whole bunch of signings and appearances uh, all listed on, on the website. you, you got to kind of ride the wave while the baseball season still going on, huh? Yeah, it's um, baseball season, and, of course, Halloween season is really starting to kick in now, too, so it is good timing for the book. And um, as you say, we've got a lot of uh, appearances coming up, and people go to the website, hauntedbaseball.com, click on the little events media tab there. They can see the list and find us when we're coming to a town near you. And if anybody has any stories they want to share, any questions for, for Dan and Mickey, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And one of the stories that I was the most uh, interested in, because I had heard this before in the in the past, and uh, I think I watched a special on Roberto Clemente, and it was kind of glossed over, and I was like, now, wait a minute, because, you know, the, whenever I see anything paranormal, I say, wait a minute. And uh, he actually kind of had visions of his own demise. Yes, he always had a, well, he, he first of all had a distrust of planes, and he, he did die in a plane crash um, on a humanitarian mission to help victims of an earthquake in Nicaragua. Um, and this was during his playing days, of course, as, as most uh, fans certainly do remember. But he had told his wife that he was going to die young. He'd had premonitions like that. He had told teammates that he was going to die in a plane crash. And he particularly said that he didn't like old planes. He had a, a strong distrust of those, and of course he ended up dying in a kind of a rickety old plane, which he took because um, it was sort of out of necessity, basically. So 
So in addition to his premonitions, and again, he had stated this to, to family members and teammates several times, his son, who was seven years old at the time of his death, um, that morning walked into a room, the, the morning uh, of the day that he took the flight, walked into a room where his father was and suddenly rushed to him and said, don't, don't take the plane tonight. And the son had not even been told that his father was going to fly that night. He just had some kind of feeling overcome him that something terrible was going to happen. Later that evening, as his father had already gone to the airport and his grandmother was babysitting him, he kept on insisting, please, please tell him not to get on the flight. And he was so insistent that uh, his grandmother, which was Clemente's mother-in-law, nearly thought of calling to try to uh, contact him and get him to stop. But it was obviously very late in the process, and he was already scheduled to take the flight. And, um, you know, it's a seven-year-old just basically not wanting to see his father leave. But that ended up being the night that he died. And and it seems, uh, you know, we, we've heard plenty of stories of other famous people that have, you know, had these visions of their own demise and had these uh, these harbingers not to get on a plane or not to go to the theater or all these different uh, incidents that have happened. But with somebody like Roberto Clemente, who gave so much of himself to, you know, the causes that he believed in, I mean, even those visions wouldn't keep him from getting on that plane for, for the mission he was undertaking. Yeah, he was a really generous spirit, you know, and, you know, I mean, he he was always looking out for, um, you know, people, other, you know, people less fortunate. And, um, you know, he had actually been to Nicaragua a couple of times before before the earthquake, you know, working, you know, he's always doing humanitarian things and helping out the poor. And, um, you know, it was very sad that he died so young. And, you know, in many ways, you know, his spirit, you know, I mean, we don't, we, we weren't able to confirm any ghost stories of, of about him, but certainly um, his spirit, you know, is definitely felt. Oh, absolutely. And, and today, with with all the you know the young uh, Latin players that look up to him, you know, it'll always be felt. Uh, just as with Jackie Robinson and the African American players, I mean, he's just the hero to so many that that his spirit will live on. And you see it in a lot of these players in the way they give back uh, to their communities. Right, and a lot a lot of the Puerto Rican players will actually wear his number. Mm-hmm. Um, even kids, you know, is they're always you know in the little leagues in Puerto Rico, they're actually fighting to have to have his number. And, you know, it's great. Well, they should just retire his number in all the little leagues just to make it easier. Then <laughs> there won't be any fights. One story that I found really interesting, and you know, I'm a, I'm a sports writer by trade, and I've heard a lot of these types of stories off and on, but never with the the wealth and the the in, you know just the the level of you know narrative that's in haunted baseball. But I had never ever heard of Lou Gehrig being involved in anything to do with the paranormal. And what an interesting story that was, uh, Lou Gehrig and the Ouija board. Yes, well, Lou Gehrig was very good friends with Fred Lieb, who is uh, still, I think, pretty well-known name among a lot of baseball fans, a uh, sports writer from the earlier part of the last century. And he was uh, good friends with Gehrig. And, in fact, anyone who's familiar with the Pride of the Yankees, the um, the baseball movie starring Gary Cooper, which is Gehrig's life story. Uh, there's a, a baseball writer played by Walter Brennan in that movie, and that's based on Fred Lieb. Lieb and his wife Mary were um, very socially uh, connected to a lot of baseball players. And so in St. Petersburg during spring training, they would often um, entertain big-name players. And on one occasion, and this was the, the year that um, Gehrig ended up having to, to quit the game, Gehrig and his wife Eleanor were at their house. They brought out the Ouija board, which they were very used to using with of their guests. And they got a message saying that uh, for Eleanor, 
saying that she would soon encounter the, the greatest difficulty of her life. And they asked the uh, communicant, basically, that they had uh, the common... They, they used the, the Ouija board to connect to uh, a spiritual guide, sort of, who commonly would communicate with Mary and Fred Lieb. They asked uh, him for more information, and he would not give it. They asked if it had to do with their plans to um, adopt a son. They, they started thinking about adopting a child after not being able to conceive. And uh, they got a no to that, but they never got any more specific information. But it was uh, just a little bit later, just weeks later, really, that Garrick started really going downhill and had to um, quit the game. And, uh, and they, they became convinced that that was the... His ALS was the uh, most difficult ordeal that uh, the board had referred to. And for anybody who's lost uh, someone to ALS, it, it is very difficult, and especially at a time back then when it was, you know, not as well known of a disease. Of course, you know, once Lou Gehrig became associated with it, it, it brought it to the forefront of the public attention. You know, when you talk about people like Gehrig and you talk about Clementi, I mean, they're good examples of. Uh, players whose lives and whose character have been so inspirational to people that they've really transcended the game of baseball. Absolutely. And I think stories like these that, that talk about their deaths but also cast them in, in a certain light help us you know, have a, have a different perspective about them and that character and why we admire them. And talking about about character but kind of in a different sense, uh, Dan, I want to talk to you for a minute about Carl Bean. Right. Definitely right. a character. The, uh, the Red Sox public address announcer, and, and he shared an interesting story with you. Now, Carl, I, I'm fortunate enough to work with Carl uh, covering the Celtics and the Patriots uh, when he does his work for the radio station, and he always has these terrific stories, and he's got a, such a great storytelling style, and it, it came through uh, in the chapter you talked with him. Uh, share, share with everybody his experience at Fenway Park. Sure. I mean, for those of you who'd, who've been to Fenway both before and after, uh, Sherm Feller, who May, no, may notice that Carl Bean sounds a little bit like uh, Sherm Feller. Sherm Feller was the longtime announcer for the Red Sox. He had a deep baritone voice, like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That kind of, you know, that really was, you know, you know what people thought about when they, you know, it, it, when people heard his voice, they always thought Finlay Park. He just uh, was kind of epitomized it in some ways. And and he was also a very talented man, Sherm Feller. He, he had... Um, written a number of songs, um, a couple hundred, I believe, um, including a symphony that's uh, currently performed by the Baltimore Symphony and uh, the Boston Pops as well. Um, and he wrote the, the song, Summertime, Summertime. But uh, anyway, but Carl Bean thought that um, Carl Bean tries to emulate um, Schoenfeller, some of his habits and some of the things he says. He always says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And he always says thank you after every message, which Schoenfeller also did. You know, now Carl Bean believes that Sherm Fellow um, occupies the, the PA booth with him, and Carl Bean will talk about how he'll greet Sherm when he comes into the uh, before every game and ask, ask him to. He kind of taps, his, wraps his fist on the, a photo and asks, asks for his luck. You know, wishes him luck, asks Sherm to wish him luck. But he also feels that you know Sherm's in in there with him and kind of talks about different you know chaotic things that happen while they're in the. Pay during the game, like headsets falling down or things falling off, things are technical glitches. And he thinks that's, you know, Sherm's uh, sense of humor, um, you know, his practic practical jokes. And, you know, he kind of, and he, it's, you know, it's a very, it was very nice talking with Carl because he, you know, he definitely felt that history and that sense of 
tradition in Boston and, um, you know, kind of really knew how, you know, that it was great to honor, you know, that tradition and preserve it and, you know, not try to have a flashy voice like in some stadiums, you know, like, you know, now batting, no more Gassipara, you know, it's mm-hmm. more of a, you know, plain voice, you know, say it and get out of the way. It's and, a throwback, yeah. Right, right. And, and, um, and it's more traditional and it's more the way baseball should be. Exactly. I mean, I know I listen to to some of the NBA guys uh, that I hear, you know, following that sport, and some of them are just ridiculous. And when you have a guy like Carl or, or Sherm Feller, you you appreciate the the simplicity of it. Exactly, yeah. And so it was kind of t- you know a nice start, nice to, for me personally because I you know remember going to Fenway when Sherm was there t- too, and you know just kind of for me you know it was a very nice story to hear. Well, we are coming up on the news in just a few minutes. Uh, we will have to take a news break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the week in weird, and we'll talk about the Paranormal X Conference. Then we'll bring you guys back on, if you can, and we'll talk more about haunted baseball, about some of these curses that are supposedly out there, as, as well as some of these other. They're just The book is so full of interesting stories, and this is the perfect time of year to pick it up. So go to hauntedbaseball.com or, or any bookstore. Um, but before we do take the break, uh, one, one question that I do want to bring up, when we're talking about Fenway Park ghost stories, uh, are there any other sightings that have been seen at Fenway? Any other? I mean, not necessarily players, but just spirits in general. Actually, we uh, talked. What part? We didn't just speak with players for the book. We also spoke to a lot of, the, of stadium workers and front office officials. I'm front. I mean, front office staff. And um, you know, you can't help. Oftentimes, clubbies would come up to us and say, "Hey, you know, we." You, know, you should hear you know this story, but actually one of the things that I, I was very eager to do um, was you know after games, after finish with the interviews, and we come back from the you know the clubhouse is closed. I loved going outside and talking to some of the cleaning crew and say, hey, you know, you guys work the late shift and what goes on. And it actually in quite a few stadiums, player you know they had stories, but Finway they had um, some really bizarre stories of here you know one. One worker, co-worker, one worker talked about hearing, you know, shrieking coming from the green monster and hearing the crack of a bat, you know, the rhythmic crack of a bat. You know, all this when the stadium's empty and no one's around. And, you know, he sometimes felt he was being followed. And he actually, you know, even thought someone was using the loo, you know, when he was sitting there, you know, when there's nobody there. So, you know, maybe, you know, <laughs> fans, you know, ghosts use, use the loo at, like, the Lou at Fenway too. Ghost are people um, too. Yeah, <laughs> they, they like it when they go because there's no lines. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, they they have the, uh, um, you know, up in the press area too. I guess you know it could be connected with uh, a Carl, you know, Sherman fellow. Who knows? But uh, there, there's you know one one person reported you know uh, doors opening and closing in the in the stadium. So you know we were able to hear quite a few stories from Fenway and from. You know, other stadiums from the workers that were there. Well, we'll talk about some more of those stadiums coming up in the second hour, as well as some of those curses. And we'll talk about, you know, just baseball means so much to so many people, and even after they've passed on. So we'll talk some more about some of that stuff as well. Uh, but coming up uh, while we're taking a news break, we have a prize to give away, which, Matt Costa, how often do we give away prizes here on Spooky South? Very rarely. So you know it must be something big if we're giving yeah. it away. We're very stingy on the show. <laughs> well, we're not stingy. We well, just don't we don't go begging don't sponsors for prizes. But we do have uh, something very special. Weird Al Yankovic, the king of parody, is coming to the Zyterian Performing Arts Center at 684 Purchase Street in New Bedford on Wednesday, September 19th at 8 p.m. Now, I believe tickets are still available uh, through Zyterian.org or at the Zyterian box office. 
They are forty six fifty, but we actually have a pair of tickets to Weird Al to give away on the air. Well, actually, we're going to do it off the air. We're going to do it during the news break. So what do you think, guys? How should we give these away? Should we should we just take call or whatever and, and do it that way, or do we want to make people work for it? Depends on how much work we want to do. Uh, I don't really want to do any work, but that's why I have you here. You're the producer. Produce. <laughs> I'd say first caller. First or caller? Maybe a well, caller. Okay. Well, why don't we why don't we make people work a little bit for it? Um you have any suggestions, Matt Moniz? Third caller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. How about the first person that can call up and sing to us any Weird Al song? What do you think? <laughs> you want to do that? Sounds good. All right. So what we'll do is while we are taking the news, uh, if you want to call in and win these tickets to see Weird Al Yankovic, just sing us any Weird Al song at 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. And even if you can't think of one, just call anyway because you don't know how generous will be feeling uh, during the news break because it, it takes a few minutes and it's tough to get through sometimes. So, <laughs> so give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for your chance to win tickets to see Weird Al Yankovic this Wednesday at the Zaitarian Performing Arts Center. Now coming up in hour number two, we are going to talk more with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley about Haunted Baseball. But before that, we're going to do our new segment, The Week in Weird. we got some good stories coming for you uh, about a different type of paranormal television show. Uh, it, it's a television show that doesn't usually focus on the paranormal, but will for one night. Uh, as well as uh, another story from our favorite paranormal city in the world now, Caracas. 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 And uh, we will also talk with... Uh, special guest Ray Dualaby of Scars Magazine, who's going to talk to us about the upcoming Paranormal X conference next Saturday night, September 22nd, uh, from 2 to 10 p.m. at the Sheraton Airport Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island. And tickets are available. If you go to scarsmagazine.com, you can find out more. But we will give away a pair of tickets to that as well later on in the show. And I don't even, we're not even going to make you work for those. We're just going to give them away. So that's uh, those tickets are a hundred dollars a piece. That's a two hundred dollar value. We're giving away like three hundred dollars worth of stuff tonight on Spooky South Coast. Can I add a, a little bonus on to the uh, Weird Al prize? Absolutely. If sure. they can quote a, mo a, a movie quote from UHF, they can they can get a bumper sticker. All right. So you can also win a Spooky <laughs> South Coast bumper. sticker. We are giving away three hundred and thirty-five cents worth <laughs> worth of prizes on Spooky South Coast tonight. You can call in and you can quote a line from UHF, any line, and we'll know it because we know that movie forwards and backwards. And, and you can win a bumper sticker as well. And we'll also throw in a bumper sticker for whoever wins the, the Weird Al tickets as well. So 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Call now because during the news break we will take your call and we will come back with a winner of the Weird Al prize. And uh, if anything else uh, happens, uh, you know, you want to share a paranormal story with us or a story about Hunter Baseball, you can call us uh, at those numbers as well. Anything else? I think that's it. I usually don't finish so soon before the news comes. I'm usually uh, getting cut off by that music. I don't know what to do. All right, well, stay tuned. We will be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. From the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of crazy, crazy, crazy. Now it's time for a breakdown. Don't mind if I do. What? <laughs> Spooky South Coast is burned. 
Hour number two, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. No takers on the UHF uh, UHF line to win a bumper sticker, Matt Costa. That's a shame. Well, we'll we'll keep that out there all night. If, if we were giving away a red snapper, maybe. Oh, red snapper, uh, very tasty. tasty. Look, we just gave you one there. But uh, yeah, hey, if you want to call in with a UHF code any time during the night, we'll give you a bumper sticker. But congratulations go out to Larry Hubri, who is the winner of the two tickets to see Weird Al Yankovic this Wednesday night at the Zyterian Theater. Very excited. He's a longtime Weird Al fan, and, and he proved it. He sang Another One Rides the Bus, <laughs> and uh, he also said he could sing My Bologna and numerous others if we needed him to, but one was enough. So congratulations to Larry. Uh, we will see you. Hopefully we'll be there, too, and uh, enjoy Weird Al. Wednesday night at the Zyterian. And uh, coming up on Saturday, September 22nd, we have something phenomenal for this area because there's not a whole lot of paranormal conferences and get-togethers that take place in our neck of the woods, which is strange because most of the biggest investigators in, in the field live in this area, and they all have to travel all over the place to go and, and participate in these conferences. But finally, there is one that is going to be taking place right in our own backyard, Paranormal X, The Gathering. We'll feature Donna LaCroix, Brian Harnois, Andy Andrews, Lisa Dualaby, Paula Donovan, Keith Johnson, Sandra Johnson, Carl Johnson, Tom D'Agostino, and EVP specialist Karen Mossy. Now, for everybody that listens to Spooky South Coast, you don't, you don't need any more information than that because you know these names. We've had them here numerous times, but these are some of the top names in the paranormal field. And joining us on the phone right now, we have Ray Dualaby, who is the publisher of Scars Magazine and who is also putting this whole event together. Ray, what an undertaking, I must say. It's um, it's pretty big. <laughs> it's it's uh, definitely interesting uh, wrangling all the people. So, well, so, at least one you were able to get a hold of, I would assume. Well, yeah, the one that lives in my house. <laughs> that's uh, usually the easiest one. That's easy to, to you know to say, hey, we're gonna go do this. You want to come? <laughs> you you actually would have been in a lot of trouble if she was the last person you invited. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably would be outside right now doing this interview from the street. But it, now all of these people essentially live in the area. Yeah, everybody lives pretty much in Rhode Island. Well, Paul lives in Massachusetts, and I think Karen Mossy. I'm not sure actually where she is. She's the she's the newcomer to the the roster. Um, but I mean, everybody's pretty much in Rhode Island, and just like you said, we don't have anything like that that big. And this is the first time all of these people will be under the same roof at one time. Well, in in a in a I mean, I assume they must have all gotten together at some point, like for a barbecue or something. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> not all at once. Maybe collectively they've all appeared together at some point, but in different little clusters. Is this going to be kind of like the, the opportunity to, to listen in to like a meeting of the minds of, 
of uh, this is this will be the opportunity for everybody to ask whatever they want to ask. This is um, we're trying to we're trying to make this like it's not just a, a structured thing where everybody has to do everything. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, you can talk to these people. You're going to sit down and eat with these people. You can um, bring whatever it is you need to be signed to have signed. You can ask questions about evidence, do all kinds of things. And uh, it's an interesting setup because uh, it's essentially it's a it's an eight hour event. Right. It's an eight hour event. It's it starts at two o'clock, and two o'clock. What we want to do is get everybody in there, do the. Um, all the ooing and eyeing, if you will, and the meet and the greet and all of that, and get that out of the way, and then have some food. Food is included, so it's like whatever it is you're paying, you're definitely going to get a nice meal. It's a decent meal, and then there's going to be talks and Q and A's, and and you can pick the minds of every single one of these people. I mean, we've got the authors, we've got um, Keith and Carl Johnson and Sandra Johnson. They're you know demonologists, and it's like they're very 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 knowledgeable you've got andy andrews you've got paula you've got lisa you've got every single aspect of the paranormal um fields and and some of these people don't actually get out to a lot of these conventions no. and conferences no i mean you so you probably i mean brian especially he likes to do shows and conferences but i mean i, I don't think anybody's ever seen andy andrews at a conference no that's um, exactly who i was thinking of when when i mentioned it right and paula does very few Lisa does very few. I mean, yep, Donna does very Actually, most of the people do very few. Tom D'Agostino, I believe, um, you can see him occasionally at the stagecoach in, in Chapachet. He does um, his own little dinners once in a while. But, I mean, Keith, Carl, and Sandra, I don't think you've seen very often. Well, there is going to be one guy there who uh, is pretty much at the opening of an envelope, and that's our own science advisor, Matt Moniz. Oh, there you go. I mean, if it, hey, if it's a good Zing. envelope... If it's a good envelope, you have to be at the opening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you're going to be serving as like the MC, Matt. Is that the plan? Matt or? is definitely going to be speaking for everyone. Yeah, I, I I volunteered my services number one because I know all of the people there. Number two, I wanted to be able to give you a chance, Ray, to help you know sit back and enjoy the the creation that you made. Uh, it's, believe me, it's um. It's it's an interesting road, and sitting back and relaxing probably won't be happening anyway. <laughs> well, I'll try and help. You yeah. know, run At least I won't have to you. do what you're doing and talk in front of everybody. <laughs> well, I'm used to it here, so it's not a problem. Excellent. Yeah. When I when I let him get a word in word in edgewise, yeah, then he speaks. <laughs> but uh, now, and part of the proceeds that you're raising, it's it's ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents per ticket. Mm -hmm. Part of the proceeds go to help Rolling Hills Preservation Fund. Now, just tell everybody what Rolling Hills is for those who aren't familiar. Rolling Hills is pretty much a hotbed of paranormal activity. I mean, no matter, I'm not, um, I, I'm not going to say I'm sensitive or I'm, um, I don't see very much, let's put it that way. But uh, we did an event called um, Spirit Search up there with Lisa and Steve. And they all went on their little investigation and walking around, and I'm standing in the hallway pretty much by myself, and it was kind of freaky because i like i said i don't experience much but i saw things coming at me and i was pretty much going oh well it's them coming back and they're all on another floor clear across the building so this place is i think if anybody wants to investigate anywhere and have a really good investigation they need to go there and, and they were in trouble for a little while and we said well we'd like to get the ball rolling we started a dinner with steve 
that's going to be happening in October, but it was supposed to happen in September as well, and that's when I said, well, why don't we get everybody who can't go there together and, and get some money raised for them as well, and I guess everything's working out fine now, so that's cool. And um, But Lori Carlson is the owner of Rolling Hills, and I would definitely, if anybody hasn't heard of it or needs to, they need to go to the Rolling Hills website. Um, right off the top of my head, I don't know the address because it's got hyphens in it. <laughs> well, we'll link it up on SpookySouthCoast.com. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, she's, she's a great person. Everybody there is great. You're gonna, actually, she will be there. Lori Carlson will oh, be excellent. there. We made sure that... Yeah, we made sure that she will be at Paranormal X. And you also, they're also offering discounted rooms at the Sheridan for anybody who wants to stay overnight? Um, I believe so. Um, I don't know if there was a cutoff point to that because we are so close. Okay. And they, the rooms might be full. Um, but, I mean, anybody's welcome to call now at this point and, and see if the discount still applies or, or if it, it, they might be full. You know what I mean? Well, they can give it a shot at 1-800-325-3535. And if you can't crash there, uh, Moniz will offer up a couch. <laughs> you can sleep in your car. It's great. <laughs> now, uh, f- f- there's also a-, a SCARS swag bag, too, for-, for people who aren't familiar with SCARS. And how can you not be, really? But oh, hey, tell- I hope everybody is. That would be <laughs> tell- great. Tell everybody about SCARS magazine. Well, it's a little little horror magazine I started in my basement. Um, we've basically worked up to from doing like a almost 2,000 magazines to going close to 20,000 magazines, and we should be in Barnes & Noble and Borders with this next issue. And we are trying to carve our own niche into the horror industry. We deal with a lot of celebrities and actually have celebrities writing for us and things like that. So we're doing things a little bit differently. And... Um, so far, it seems to work. People seem to like it, and we try to hit every every vein of horror, if you will. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's also some really pretty women in the magazine too. There's the the women, um, the women were are interesting. We have toned down a bit though at the request of distribution because for some reason um, you can't mix your flesh with your blood, and and that kind of makes people uncomfortable when it comes to Barnes and Noble and Borders. <laughs> They're okay with each separately. Yes. If you can have naked women and you can have exploding heads, but you can't have exploding heads next to naked women. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's kind of, you know, it's weird, but um, we, do, we will feature certain actresses as long as they're in the horror field right now. But we, we, we're definitely leaning towards putting on another publication in the future called Scars Extreme. Nice. And that will be the magazine that you can't find in Borders and Barnes & Noble, only through us. Well, uh, I know Matt Coss will be first on the subscription <laughs> list for that one. Oh, and we're, we're also going to attempt a calendar as well. So Beautiful. And that would be, and we're, we're still we're working on that. It might not make it for 2008, but definitely for 2009. Well, keep us up to date with everything, Ray. We're always more than happy to, to let everybody know about SCARS. And, of course, uh, we're already looking forward to not only Paranormal X, but what are you going to call it next year, Paranormal X 2? Well, we're going to see. We'll, we'll see how this one goes and if everybody still wants to do it. And we'll, we're going to keep the X, but we'll so it might be Paranormal XI. Ah. <laughs> Who knows? Well, we I... also do, um, we're doing the dinners, the Feasts of Fear. Those will have horror celebrities. And, uh, Very we'll, cool. We're, we're carving it. We're, we're doing it. We're carving our own little pumpkin. 
All right. Well, uh, like I said, just keep us up to date, and uh, let's hope everybody goes online and buys tickets at scarsmagazine.com. But we're actually going to give away a pair. Ray was nice enough to give us a pair to give away, and we will do that later on in the show. Yes, definitely let me know who the winner is, and they'll get their lovely tickets. Will do. Thank uh, you very much. Thank you, Ray, and we'll be talking to you. All right. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. That is Ray Dualaby of Scars Magazine, who has put together the Paranormal X The Gathering. So go to SpookySouthCoast.com uh, for more information. We'll put the Rolling Hills website up there as well, and, of course, ScarsMagazine.com if you want to buy tickets. Wow, a magazine where it mixes naked women and blood. you got to like that idea, Matt. Sure. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? It does sound a little weird. What else sounds weird? The weekend weird? Sounds good. More bad news. And well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> The Week in Weird. All right, and our first story for The Week in Weird comes from the Portland Press-Herald, the home paper of my good friend Mike Lowe. This comes from the town of Millbridge, Maine, a town that I've been lucky enough to spend some time in, and it was like Village of the Damned, let me tell you. There was two, two teeth in the entire town. Uh, our, not in the same head. To our lovely, to our lovely listeners in Millbridge, Maine. I'm just kidding. You have a wonderful community. Some folks around this down east town might be happy to see an aging farmhouse demolished to pave way for a new home being created by Ty Pennington in the cast of ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition. It turns out the farmhouse, where two local teachers and their three young children had resided since the 1990s, was haunted, according to Professor Marcus Labrizzi, an English professor at the University of Maine at Machias and the current owners, Brittany Ray and Ron Smith. They report that sharp objects in the home were manipulated in the years that they lived there. They discovered pins, needles, and even scissors balanced end on end inside the home, said Labrisi, who describes the creepy occurrences in a book, Dark Woods, Chill Waters, Chris Balzano wants to fight him now, published this month by Down East Books. It got to be where the family would be cutting meat, and they'd rush over to wash the knives and put them away. Nothing could be left out, not even a tack or a pen. It's kind of a series of bizarre and threatening activities, he said. An ABC spokeswoman confirmed that the Millbridge home marks the first time that Extreme Makeover Home Edition has dealt with a haunted house. The hauntings were believed to be caused by the spirits of either Ray's great-great-grandmother, Etta Mitchell, or Mitchell's husband, Augustus Mitchell, or perhaps both, Labrizzi said. Etta Mitchell was known to be frightened of sharp objects. Brittany Ray and Ron Smith, who've been whisked away to Disney World while their new home is being built, helps have ABC be owned by Disney. We're not available for comment on Tuesday, but Brittany Ray's brother Jeremy said the family does indeed believe that the spirits of Augustus and Etta Mitchell, the home's original owners, reside there. They've come to believe that the spirits of Nana and Gus are protectors. Over the years, the family would find pins that were left out stuck in wax candles and scissors that were not put away were found stuck in a countertop, said Jeremy Ray, who lives in Sacco. But the incident that reassured the family that the spirits weren't sinister happened once in the middle of the night. Brittany was awakened by a presence in the bedroom and said something was wrong, but she couldn't wake up her husband, her brother said. She raced downstairs to find the temperature had topped 100 degrees inside the house because of a malfunctioning furnace. Jeremy Ray said he believes the spirits have no objection to the destruction of the home, which has a failing septic system, no insulation, a cracked foundation, an outdated furnace, a leaky roof, and ancient electrical wiring. Wow, they live in the WBSM studios. Just to be sure, Extreme Makeover filmed the spirit reading held 
in the House Monday night to get the Spirit's approval, he said. Bulldozers raised the House Tuesday, and hundreds of volunteers prepared to start building the new residence. And, of course, I was just kidding about both the Millbridge main cracks and the WBSM cracks. All right, Matt Costa, I want to give it to you this time, and then you can throw it to Matt Moniz because I'm going to check out for a minute. All right. Google Incorporated and X, the XPRIZE Foundation is bankrolling a $30 million prize to the first private company that can safely land a robotic rover on the moon and beam back a gigabyte of images and video to Earth. If the competition provides a winner, it would be a step forward in the emerging private spa- spaceflight industry and a, mark the first time a non-government entity has flown a lunar probe. The rules call for a spacecraft to trek at least 1,312 feet across the lunar surface and return to data package, including self-portraits, panoramic view, and real, near real-time videos. Whoever accomplishes this feat at the end of 2012 will receive $20 million. There's, if there is no winner, the prize will drop to $15 million until the end of 2014 when the, when the contest expires. There's also a $5 million second place prize and a $5 million in bonus money to teams that go beyond the minimum requirements. Details of the Google X prize are to be revealed at the Wired Next Fest technology show in Los Angeles. Government, government lunar missions can cost upward of hundreds of millions of dollars, but the Prize X Foundation and Google hope, to, hope, to, hope the private sector can do it for considerably less. The competition comes at a time of revived interest in lunar exploration since the Cold War space race. Google partnered with the X Foundation, X Prize Foundation, for the Moon Challenge, which is open to companies around the world. The Santa Monica-based nonprofit institute is based for the hosting is best known for the hosting of the Ansari X Prize contest, which led the first manned private spaceflight in 2004. Moniz, you're up for the challenge? I think I can handle it. Do you have a, uh, a broken Tilt-A-Whirl that you're not using? Uh, I may be able to donate something have to have the cause. Have you seen that film, Explorers? Remember yes. <laughs> he was the science advisor for that film, he too. He was, I'm sure. I thought he was a space alien. <laughs> <laughs> With uh, the meme, Ricky Ricardo. Thought it was the uh, thought it was the space alien from Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> Hello, Navigator. All wait right. A, wait a minute. I have to return to my home planet. <laughs> that line from UHF. Yeah. The mad. The mad. You get a bumper sticker. Yeah, he does. He gets a bumper sticker. I hope we get to meet Weird Al just so I can walk up to him and say, "Change, Mister. You got changed." All right. Go ahead, Moniz. Ah, from what is becoming the paranormal capital of the world, Caracas. A Venezuelan man who had been declared dead woke up in the morgue in excruciating pain after medical examiners began their autopsy. Carlos Camel, 33, was declared dead after a highway accident had taken and had been taken to the morgue, where examiners began to autopsy only to realize something was amiss when he started bleeding. They quickly sought to stitch up the incision on his face. I woke up in pain and it was unbearable, Camillo said, according to a report on Friday in leading local newspaper, El Universal. His grieving wife turned up at the morgue to identify her husband's body, only to find him moved 
into a corridor, into a corridor and alive. Routers could not immediately reach the hospital officials to confirm the events, but Cameo showed the newspapers his facial scar and a document ordering the autopsy. That's really going to suck. Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. That's all I'll say about that. Because they don't really give you uh, a local for an autopsy, you know? <laughs> yeah, you kind of don't get nothing. Yeah, no no gas, nothing. All right, well, that is the Week in Weird. If you have a Week in Weird story you'd like to share with us, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the message board, go to the Week in Weird thread, drop the story in there, and if we read it on the air, we will give you full credit and a Spooky South Coast bumper sticker, which is also still up for grabs if you call in with a UHF line. But uh, we will be right back in a moment with more with our discussion with Mickey Bradley and Dan Gordon, authors of the book Haunted Baseball, Ghosts, Curses, Legends, and Eerie Events. And, of course, we'll also have those two free passes for Paranormal X, a $200 value, before the end of the show tonight. So stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. I'm Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and we are ready to get back into our discussion with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley. And, you know, they're listed on the book alphabetically on the front cover of Haunted Baseball. That's what I'm assuming they did. But I'm going to start referring to them as Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley because Dan's a Red Sox fan and Mickey likes the Yankees. <laughs> that sounds fair. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm just oh, going, yeah. I'm going in order in the standings. That's the way I'm going. So, but getting back into the discussion, uh, of course, the book is called Haunted Baseball. But a big part of the book also deals with some of the curses uh, surrounding some of these major league teams. And, of course, we've we've heard about the big ones, uh, that being the curse of the Bambino, which, there we go, there's another dollar in Dan Shaughnessy's pocket. But uh, also, you know, the, the Billy Goat curse of the Chicago Cubs. Which one, in, in your experiences going through baseball, which one stood out more in the national landscape, talking to players in different cities? Well, I would say of, the, of those two, um, and maybe my perception is skewed because I, I live in the Northeast, but I think the Curse of the Bambino um, probably had the most attention and heat over the last 20 years or so. But, of course, the, the Billy Goat Curse for the Cubs has been around a lot longer, and so it's a, a little more deep-rooted that way. Well, I was wondering if maybe the, the, the Billy Goat Curse had taken precedence now because of what happened in 2004, that you know maybe people weren't really focusing on the curse of the Bambino anymore, but people still think that that was an actual, players still think that that was an actual curse? The, the Billy Goat curse you're talking about? No, the curse of the Bambino. They still think that that might have actually played into some of this stuff? Yeah, you know, when you talk to players about curses, it's interesting because, uh, not surprisingly, a lot of players don't like to say that the team they're currently playing on is cursed. Um, I mean, who, who, who's going to say, oh, we can't possibly win? Fans don't want to hear that. Teammates don't want to hear that. No one wants to let that get into their mental game to begin with. So, um, sometimes when we talk to players about those curse stories, they're, they're eager to deny them. There were definitely some exceptions. I, I mentioned before that Johnny Damon, for instance, did endorse the notion of the curse of the Bambino. But um, after the fact, uh, some players are, are a little more willing to, to say that they thought something was up. 
In the case of the curse of the Bambino, um, we thought an interesting angle to take on that was, because the curse has since been broken, to talk about who gets credit for having broken it. As you know, Red Sox fans um, underwent a lot of different <laughs> attempts and activities and trickery to try to find some way to break that curse over the years. And anyone who tried something in 2004, I suppose, can legitimately lay, lay claim to the idea that they were the one that did it. And there, there was a number of attempts. I remember an attempt back in the early 90s with Father Guido Sarducci exercising Fenway Park. Yeah, that was. They, they had some really entertaining things. Uh, you know, Laurie Cabot was at the stadium at least a couple times, and you know, Bill Lee told a story about how, you know, Laurie tried. He actually wrote about it in, in his book. I think um, his his first memoir, and uh, you know, about an attempt to, you know, bless you know on the broken bat of uh, Tom Bronanski or something like that. You know, there's been a lot of interesting, you know, rituals done at the park. Well, the you want my opinion what broke the curse? <laughs> Please. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. 2004, um, Babe Ruth's uh, last surviving daughter was asked to be brought to uh, Yankee Stadium and to be presented a plaque or some sort of medal or what have you. And she was actually charged admission into the park, <laughs> the park that her father built, that following at the end of the season – we all know what happened. In he said, fashion. yeah, screw you guys. I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> you think that might have played into it? She wasn't trying to bring a goat in with her, was she? <laughs> they might have let her. But, I mean, there's, like you said, though, there's so many people that try different attempts. I mean, I remember hearing about the trying to pull the piano out of the pond. Uh, my, my favorite story was in the book uh, about the young boy that, that lived in uh, one of Babe Ruth's former properties. Yes, um, and he had a... Uh, an interesting set of coincidences, really, that, that sort of aligned him with um, the curse. As you mentioned, his family lived in a house that used to be owned by Ruth, and, in fact, it still bears some marks on the floor where Ruth used to tap out his cigarette ashes. Um, in addition to that, he was there with a... Uh, he was a 16-year-old boy at the time. His name is um, Lee Gavin. He was there attending a friend's birthday party, and the friend's name was uh, Derek Lowe, um, coincidentally, obviously, pitcher for the team at the time. Um, the Red Sox won that day. The Yankees playing in New York had uh, their biggest loss ever. They lost 22 to nothing to the Cleveland Indians. And what happened with uh, Gavin was that he went to catch a ball that was hit by Manny Ramirez, and it slipped through his hands, hit his um, mouth, and knocked out uh, his two front teeth, which were later found and, and put back into his mouth, by the way. And he got the ball signed by Ramirez and so forth. But there, there was uh, some, some theory began to develop that in that ball hitting him, it somehow knocked out the curse as well. Now, what about in Chicago? I mean, at least around here, people might not be totally familiar with the, the story of the Billy Goat curse. But, and it's even kind of gotten skewed over the history. How exactly did that curse come about? That curse happened because a Greek tavern owner who was uh, nicknamed Billy Goat Cyanus actually tried to bring a goat to the ballpark in the 1945 World Series, which is the last time that uh, the Cubs were in the World Series. And uh, legend usually has it that he was turned away at the door, but in fact he was admitted with the goat. He argued his way in because he had a ticket for the goat, and he said that there was nothing on the ticket that said you couldn't use it for, you know, a barnyard animal, basically. Um, but they were trying to kick him out really from the beginning, and in the middle of the game, 
uh, the goat started to smell particularly bad to the people around him. It was raining that day, and they used that as the reason to uh, to kick them out. And standing outside the gates, uh, Billy Goat Cyanus cursed the team, said that they would uh, not win a World Series again. And indeed, they have not won a World Series since then. Now, in that time, yes, the, not only fans, but the team has done a lot to try to reverse that curse. They've allowed um, goats to come onto the field. Cyanus himself died in 1970, but his nephew uh, still runs the Billy Goat Tavern. In fact, there's now eight Billy Goat Taverns throughout Chicago. There's also one in Washington, D.C. And he sometimes brings a goat to the, to the game. Sometimes he's denied entry. Um, but there have been occasions where the team has had him come in for a ceremonial walk around the field with the goat, especially before big games. Um, but nothing seems to do the trick. Interestingly, Billy Goat Cyanus himself in 1969, when the Cubs were having a great season, said that he was taking the curse off the team. He deliberately tried to de-hex the Cubs, um, having uh, put the curse on him in the first place. And when they lost that year, they took a slide late in the season, and the Mets ended up winning. Um, he insisted that it wasn't because of the curse, because he had removed it. But, you know, I, had a, I talked with some fans about that, and one fan said that um, he believes that once a curse is on a team, you can't just take it off. Even the person who put the curse on there in the first place, you can't turn it on and off like a switch. You need something like an exorcism. In this case, he recommended a, a Greek Orthodox priest, because Cyanus himself was Greek. That, uh, someone like that needs to come in to formally remove a curse once it's in place. I think you should just sacrifice Steve Bartman. Uh, Steve Bartman, who um, is taken by some as the curse per personified because the Cubs were on the verge of getting to the World Series in 2003 when he kind of innocently reached out for what looked like a foul ball. And um, some people believe that uh, Moises Alou, the outfielder, might have caught it for an out. Um, he, he got it instead. Was the fan interference? Was it not? People don't know. But the, the team um, lost that game possibly as a result of that. This was in the eighth inning. The, the Cubs had been up 3 to nothing. They ended up losing 8-3. to three. And then they went on to lose the next game and therefore missed their opportunity to get to the World Series. Yeah, Barman has had a tough time of it since then because he was so vilified in Chicago that uh, he literally received death threats and um, had to be escorted from the uh, field that, that day by security. He didn't even end up with the ball. But security had to usher him out because the crowd was reacting so violently toward him. And haven't they tried a number of uh, stunts to try to remove the curse themselves as well? Yeah, and speaking of Bartman, they tried to blow up the, they, they blew up his ball actually. <laughs> <laughs> they um, and it was uh, a ritual. Uh, it was actually um, tried to uh, that didn't seem to work, and then they um, tried to um, use you know pieces of the ball and they fed it to the fans. They thought it was ingested and. <laughs> And you know um, that it might actually um, help do that, but still, I'm They're really weird out in Chicago. Huh? <laughs> no, unfortunately, the goat never threw a piano into a pond, so this is the That's kind of true. thing they have to do. That's true. But I mean, uh, they've they've tried bringing in like uh, I know Billy Corgan's a big fan, and I know he's been working hard to try to reverse the curse for many years. And right, well, when they when they blew up the ball, this is the the Bartman ball that um, the owner of Harry Carey's restaurant, Harry Carey, of course, being the much-beloved and famous um, announcer for the team for many years, he bid on the ball and uh, to try to destroy it in an effort to destroy the curse. And in the ceremony where they blew it up, yes, Billy Corrigan from the appropriately named Smashing Pumpkins, also a Chicago-based band, wrote some songs and was there at the ceremony. They got Harold Ramis to come in because he was a Ghostbuster, and they wanted a Ghostbuster there. He was in that, that movie, of course. So, yeah, there was a lot of people er Ernie around Hudson trying was to get busy. through the curse. <laughs> so, 
Sorry. I had to make an Ernie Hudson crack for the benefit of, of Matt Costa. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, when they finally do win, and let's face it, you know, the odds, they, they have to eventually, someday. They can't go every year without winning, even the Red Sox won. You know, will we be rid of curse stories in baseball, or are there some other ones that we haven't heard of? Well, there are quite a, quite a few others, and uh, that was one of the interesting things. I mean, some of them are known among the local fans. Um, one of the interesting um, curses is uh, the curse of the plaque in, in San Francisco, where um, a cur- the back in uh, was it 1920, uh, it was uh, uh, in uh, World War. There was a player who played for the Giants called Eddie Grant, and he was uh, um, most noted for his, his intellect rather than his playing ability, and he. Um, also, but it, and also for his his, um, his character, and, and after he finished with baseball, he actually went on to become an attorney, and he left his uh, his uh, you know practice to go fight in World War One because he kind of believed in the cause. He was in his mid thirties, mid to late thirties, and still decided to do that, and um, you know ended up uh, dying out in, in you know in the in the Battle of Argonne actually. And um, his uh, plaque was uh, remained on the was built afterwards to memorialize him. There had been a ceremony on the field, and um, many years later, when the Giants kind of pulled out of New York, out of the polo grounds, and moved moved west, somehow the plaque went missing, didn't go with them. And uh, some, you know, some people today think the Giants have had a you know not done, done too well since then. They haven't won a World Series, at least, and uh, that's one of the one of the curses. In addition to, to team curse stories like that, and we found them for some teams uh, that, again, Dan and I had not heard uh, curse stories for before, but uh, one of my favorites in the curse section has to do with an individual player who felt cursed, and that's Jose Lima, who had won 21, a pitcher, veteran pitcher, of course, won 21 games with the Astros in 1999, and the following year he lost 13 games in a row, among other losses, while he was often pitching well. So in a lot of those losses, it was a real hard luck loss. And he began to think that maybe someone had cursed him. Back home in the Dominican Republic, he visited a a religious woman who confirmed that. She said, yes, I can feel the negativity on you. Someone has, has put a curse on you. And she even got very specific. She said that it was a woman that she was in her uh, 30s, somewhere between the age of 30 and 40, and that she put a curse on you because you promised something that you didn't deliver. And Lima was very eager to try to confront this woman, find out who had done it. He even took the extraordinary step of appearing on television in the Dominican Republic to make a public plea for this woman to come forward, Um, but he never found out who it was. Nevertheless, the the woman who had sort of diagnosed the case for him gave him uh, a cure that's sort of similar to Catholic penance, attend nine masses for two hours, one hour with her, one hour through the mass, uh, you know, he was on his knees most of the time, and he said that throughout that process he could feel his spirit getting lighter, and by the end he could tell that the curse was gone, and um, ever since then he's had no problem. Yeah, and another team, uh, getting back to the team curse concept, another team that's in the book is mentioned as possibly being cursed is the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, uh, mainly due to their, their choice in name. But can you really blame what's happened to the Devil Rays on, on a curse, or is it more just poor management? Well, they've had a lot of bad luck, too. I mean, they've, they've signed a lot of, um, you know, players that, you know, were on the top of the game when they came in and, and didn't uh, pull through. Guys like Juan Guzman, Wilson Alvarez, Greg Vaughn, Vinny Castilla. Um, and they've also had very bad luck with, with uh, you know, their draft picks, guys that, you know, they, they've always had very good scouting. And, you know, right, even right now they have a lot of great young players. Going through, but a lot of the players that have been drafted over the years have 
done very poorly have had in and out of injury and in, or in and out of jail or or whatever um one one player nick Bribo, was shot in the arm and in the chest and um another player was um arrested and Greg Toad Nash was arrested a number of times and convicted. They've had a, a whole slew of problems. Um, but what, what's interesting about the Devil Rays, and many, um, many um, fans, and pl- especially many players, you know, often like to talk about the stadium perhaps being built over a, uh, a graveyard or Indian burial grounds. You hear rumors of that in Anaheim. And we, we found in, in a number of other ballparks in Toronto, we heard rumors of that, too. But the only place where it's been verified that a stadium is built over a you know, cemetery is actually in Tampa Bay, and it's not just one cemetery, but three cemeteries. And when they were actually doing uh, construction, many you know back in, before the stadium was built, it was actually a low-income housing project. And um, when during the building of that, or actually the building of I-275, I believe that the highway that actually you know leads up to uh, that part of town. Um, they, one of the cemeteries, they actually found bodies like you know skulls and legs and arms and things like that. And, you know, so there's been a lot of um, you know proof of that. And you know, there's but there's also been a lot of grief in Tampa Bay. You know, a lot of bad teams. Well, even since you published the book, I mean, you can add to that. There's been injury and arrest. Uh, you know, Rocco Baldelli, and there's right. been, you know, so there's there's stuff that you could add on even to that. So it continues on. Sure. Yeah, it's 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 uh, you know, it's really hard to be a. Ta- I can't imagine trying to be a Temple Devil Rays fan. Well, the good thing is, is if you are, if you are a fan of the Devil Rays or any Major League Baseball team, uh, you can kind of you know associate with that team uh, even in death. There's there's a whole chapter about fans who have had their ashes spread over ball fields and and some people who have actually done it without the team's permission in some interesting ways. Yeah, it's really more common than I knew before we started looking into that. Um, what really surprised me, I think, the most is that there are a number of um, major league ballparks that will accommodate requests from fans to uh, scatter some ashes, usually not an, an entire set of ashes. But um, they usually do it in a very quiet way. A lot of the players don't even know about it. In fact, uh, the White Sox, for instance, and U.S. Cellular Field, they told me they have about three to ten requests a year. And on days when the team is not in town, they will try to accommodate those in, again, a very quiet way. When I asked some players about it, they not only didn't know that it happened, but they didn't really like the idea too much that, um, that they're out in a field that has uh, cremated ashes on it. It's always usually done on the warning track because ashes can kill the grass. In um, Wrigley Field, people sometimes try to do it surreptitiously. They'll just take the tour, and then when no one's looking, they think, they'll open up a little vial and sprinkle out some ashes or... Fans will try to reach over um, a wall during a game and sprinkle it on. And the, the, the security guards and the grounds crew are very sensitive to that. Because oh. Simply might have lost you, Mickey. Dan, you still with us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where Mickey went. Maybe, uh, you know, his ashes were dumped. He, he, he must have uh, succumbed to one of the curses, maybe. I'm, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I'm back. Yeah, that was just a brief cursed moment there. That's what happens. We're used to it. We, we talk about the paranormal every week here. We're used to it. Yeah, ghost in the machine somewhere. Um, so, yeah, so, so um, ashes, it's, again, I think, it's, um, I think more than anything it, it speaks to how deeply some people feel about baseball and their favorite teams and how, um, how eternal, really, that connection is for them. 
Well, even if you don't want to be cremated and spread over the field, there's a company called Eternal Image that, that will help you remember your favorite team as, as you pass on, too. Right. They, they, uh, they sell um, coffins and urns that, you know, you can have your own, your favorite team's logo on it and, you know, be remembered in that way, too. As we're wrapping things up here, what was it that really stuck out in your minds that made you think that, you know, you could start searching for some of these ghost stories in Major League Baseball and, and get a response? Is it because of the, you know, rumored superstition of the players? Is it because of, you know, the, the stories that we've heard in the media like the, the Vinoy? What was it that made you think, gee, there's probably a wealth of stories here and we can get these guys to talk? Well, I mean, it really is that there, there are ghost stories in, in so many other areas, you know, there, there's... You know, you look at, at historical buildings, you look at old places, you know, and, and baseball is such a game, you know, again, it's such a game that's steeped in tradition and that people like to look upon the past and, you know, remember it. And, you know, Babe Ruth's name is brought up how many times, uh, you know, all, all the time. And, you know, players of the past are, you know, thought of in, in the present. And so it's, it's very natural. So, you know, it was surprising to us when we thought about it, when we first started to tackle a topic that, you know, that really there weren't any ghost stories that we were aware of. And, and so it was kind of, you know, it, we thought there had to be something there. And when we went out and started looking, you know, we were delighted, you know, to actually hear that there are, there is this gold mine of stories and, you know, that the great stories and, you know, there, um, you know, maybe some of these players of the past are lingering. And there's enough stories to maybe come out with a volume two? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have a... We, we actually, um, our publisher um, wouldn't let us go beyond a certain length, so we actually are halfway into a second book, and, and you know, hopefully you know, in 2009 we'll, well, that will come out too. Any thoughts of maybe pursuing similar stories in, in other sports? Um, we're, we're accumulating, actually. Um, start, you know, we've heard some stories from football and, and hockey. Actually, just the other day I was talking to a fan who, who was telling me about soccer, soccer stadium, you know, the old stadium and, you know, some of the stadiums in Great Britain. So, yeah, certainly. There's one I heard about racetracks, car drivers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's, you know, with all the crashes and all the tragedies that have happened, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and people can actually go to your website, hauntedbaseball.com, and submit some stories too, right? Yes, there's a, a link there. For people who want to share stories, um, because as Dan said, uh, a second book is already well on the way. So we're we're always eager to hear what people have experienced themselves. And it's a good way for players who want to try to remain anonymous to share some of what they've heard. Maybe Kurt Schilling will write you a long email. <laughs> he's on the internet quite a bit, so. Right. Well, if he's listening right now, he's he's got the the link, counterbaseball.com. And if he is listening, you can throw us some uh, some startup money. <laughs> No, all the, he he invests in so many different projects, and he's got so much going on. I wouldn't be surprised if he's got something of a paranormal nature in the works too. Mm-hmm. So now, a bloody sock at least. <laughs> one one thing, <laughs> bloody socks for everybody. He'll he'll mass market them with his own blood. Vampires will eat him up. <laughs> Pun intended. Now, but as we see all these stories and all these superstitions, I mean, do you find baseball players to be any more superstitious than regular people, or is this something that we've just you know, people have perceived over the years because we've heard the stories, or, or are they generally more amped up and more superstitious than we general people are? I don't want to speak for Mickey. I mean, but I, I thought that, you know, I think the game's so slow and, it's a, you know, there's so much time for thinking and there's so much um, chance in the game and, and so much failure in the game. You know, the, even the most successful players, uh, you know, they only 
successful hitters are only successful, you know, 30 to 35 percent of the time. You know that there really is, um, you know, a lot, you know, balls falling falling in. There's just a lot of room for, um, you know, wondering like why, why they're, why, why, you know, about the success and what, you know, what makes you successful and what doesn't. So I think that kind of lends itself to some of the superstition. But yeah, I agree. I, it's you know, it's a funny game. It's a game where anything can happen. And I realize that's true in other games as well. But even more so in baseball, you know, you can look at uh, a matchup on paper and think you know who is likely to win that game, and it often doesn't go that way, not to mention the many individual plays that happen over the course of a game. So I think, I think players are very used to the idea that anything can happen, and it's hard to find a logical reason sometimes to explain the things that are happening. It seems to defy logic very often. And that lays the groundwork for being open to all kinds of potential reasons behind things. All right, so ghosts and baseball, it's more than just fields of dreams. We'd like to thank our guests, Mickey Bradley and Dan Gordon, authors of Haunted Baseball, Ghost Curses, Legends, and Eerie Events. Uh, HauntedBaseball.com is the website, and you guys said 2009 you're looking at the second book coming out? Oh, yeah, about, the, about then, yeah. Yeah, we should, you know, that's what we're aiming for. Okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe the Cubs can reverse their curse before then, but hopefully not this year because it, it's going to be the Red Sox year, Mickey. I'm sorry to tell you. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll have a couple more championships under our belt. Hey, feel feel free, uh, Mickey, if you want to call back and gloat if I'm wrong. You know, you got the numbers. Okay, I've got the numbers. Uh, I've got the website. I will definitely get back to you. Sounds good. All right, thank you guys for joining us. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. That is Dan and Mickey, the authors of Haunted Baseball. Great guys. And, and for those who remember Dan's first appearance here on Spooky South Coast when we talked about uh, Cape Encounters, Haunted Cape Cod Stories with his co-author Gary Joseph. I mean, they're just they're, they're, they're really good at you know humanizing these stories and, and sharing not only the story itself but who the person is telling it. When you read through Haunted Baseball, it's more than just the ghost stories about baseball. It's the players who are telling them and the players that are believing them. It, it really is a unique book. I mean, I was not expecting when I when I picked it up, I was not expecting it to be such a historical, you know, reference guide to so much that's happened. But I, I highly recommend it with the baseball season winding down and the Halloween season upon us. And uh, check it out. But uh, didn't we have something else we had to do before the end of the show tonight? Uh, I can't remember what that was. Wasn't it? Let me ask Mr. Master of Ceremonies over here. Was there something we were supposed to be doing? Uh, possibly giving something away. That's right. So now, what what exactly are you, are you just going to be introducing everybody? Do you plan on, on doing any kind of presentation yourself, or are you just going to be segueing from one guest speaker to another? I'm mainly going to be just your typical Master of Ceremonies. I'll introduce each person as they come in, give their basic background, and, you know, turn it over, turn the microphone over to them so they can do their little spiel. And You're going to dress up? I can do that. I want to see this. This I got to see. I've never seen Moniz dressed up. But uh, it should be an interesting experience. Matt Koss and I are going to try and make it before Spooky South Coast. We might be broadcasting Spooky South Coast from Paranormal X. We don't know. We have to wait it's and see. Well, uh, yeah, it's I want to. I want to talk to the hotel and make sure it's okay with them because I don't know. It's it's my wedding anniversary, so I don't know if I can get away with uh, staying out all night, renting a room at the Sheraton without my wife on our anniversary. So. She'll so see. prayer. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's time to give away the pair of tickets to Paranormal X. Uh, what we will do is, uh, do, you, do you want to do it on the air, Matt? Or do you think we should do it when we go off the air? 
you want to wait till off? Yeah, we'll wait till we go off. I'm not a big fan of taking your caller two, your caller three, your caller four, your caller five. You know, so we'll do it when we go off the air. But you want to call 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and the winner will get a pair of tickets to the Paranormal X Conference. I'll just run it down real quick before we run out of time. Paranormal X The Gathering, featuring Donna LaCroix, Brian Harnois, Andy Andrews, Lisa Dualaby, Paula Donovan, Keith Johnson, Sandra Johnson, Carl Johnson, Tom D'Agostino, and Karen Mossy. Saturday, September 22nd from 2 to 10 p.m. at the Sheraton Airport Hotel in Warwick. Uh, for more information, you can go to scarsmagazine.com, and you can find out more there. A portion of the proceeds go to the Rolling Hills Preservation Fund. So uh, that is coming up next Saturday. And also next Saturday, we're going to tell you about the upcoming Capers Open Meeting, which will be really interesting, Antiquarian Books of the Paranormal, uh, with special guest Robert McDowell. Can I call him Rowdy? Do you think we'll get mad if I call him Rowdy? So we'll talk to you more about that next week, but uh, if you can't wait, you can go to capers.com to find out more. So we don't know what's going on for next week, but we do know that we will be back here uh, right after the Red Sox on WBSM and streaming live, of course, on SpookySouthCoast.com and WBSM.com. But for now, call if you want to win those Paranormal X tickets, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We will take caller. I'm throwing it to you, Costa. Seven. Caller 7. Caller 7 will be the winner. And uh, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now. It seems, or at least until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernaturalist.